My name is Vijay Iyer. I make music. I also think about music and I talk about music and sometimes I write about music. I have the position in an educational institution that allows me to help other people do all of the above as well. As a little kid, age three, <laughs> um, supposedly I was interested in playing violin. So my mother signed me up for lessons. My sister, who was a few years older, started taking piano lessons at the same time. So this is like something that we would both be doing, um, not really at the same time, but sort of um, in the same space. At some point in that very early, those very early months, I put my hands on her piano. <laughs> and uh, that was this very different and kind of electrifying experience that I remember to this day. And I particularly remember this one time that she and I improvised a duet on the, it was like this very humble little spinet piano. And we just were banging on the keys, you know, and it was like what little kids do. But it was so electrifying to me. It really um, put me into a space that was very, uh, that had this like vibratory and like incantatory kind of significance. And uh, particularly the way that it connected with my body, you know, like I remember feeling the instrument vibrating. I still remember what that felt like. I didn't choose the professional path to be a music maker until I was 23, which is pretty late in the scheme of things. Um, you know, a lot of people go to conservatories or music schools or feel the calling and, and follow the calling, heed the calling from an earlier age. I resisted it or just didn't know what to do with it until I was an adult. And that um, made certain things hard, but it also meant that I had already lived a different kind of life by the time I made that choice to follow the call. So that, I would say, enriched my spirit in that sense. I quit violin when I was a sophomore in college, but piano would become much more important. And uh, trying to be in this world of music called jazz, which is um, a complicated word, <laughs> but uh, trying to be anywhere near it or, or kind of do it any kind of justice took like a certain amount of passion. And and I just found myself drawn to it constantly and just like obsessing over it, even though that wasn't what I was studying in school. It was um, something that I was studying on my own terms. You know, I was um, listening to a lot of music and trying to make sense of it, trying to play it, trying to write music and lead my own groups and put on concerts. And this is all while I was in college at Yale. And I would also come down to New York City to check out live music. And that was like definitely uh, transformative. Just seeing, I remember different shows I saw then in the around 1990, 91, 92, Joe Henderson, 
um, Anthony Braxton, Cecil Taylor, um, George Coleman. I did see Prince in 1988 in my freshman year. That was with Sheila E. on drums, which is phenomenal. When I moved to Oakland, California um, in 92 to initially to start graduate school in the sciences, which you know I thought that was what I was going to do, was try to be a physicist. But as soon as I got there, I started playing in town. Um, in particular, the apartment I wound up living in was across the street from this club called the Birdcage, <laughs> with a K, Birdcage. And um, they had a jam session there every Sunday that was run by these this guy in his 70s. And I was 20. So I would go and sit in. And they figured out eventually that I lived across the street and that I had a keyboard. So then I got asked to be the house pianist and they'd pay me some little pittance to show up with my gear. And um, so then I had to like, being the house pianist at a jam session means that you're going to play for five hours, all kinds of tunes you've never played before. And you have to like be able to just be in it immediately. And especially like they might, you, there might be a singer who asks you to play a song you've never played before. And here's a sheet music, but we're going to do it in a different key. And then they'll just start counting it off. And then you're, you know, so like I had to learn how to do all that. And and then like learning how to be in the band and not just function, but help, you know, like help it matter. Help it mean something to, I guess, you know, to somebody. And that's where I learned like, oh, this actually does mean something to somebody. So like, you know, a lot of kids who grew up in the suburbs and, showing their high school jazz ensemble or something. And then they're like, hey, I'm playing jazz, right? Which is what happened to me, basically. <laughs> um, then, you you know, you don't really get exposed to the living, breathing community of for whom this music matters, you know? It's just a scholastic activity. But to, to be among people for whom this music matters, you know, to play a standard like How High the Moon, which has been played a million times. But then you'll find that like someone in the audience knows the words to that song and starts singing it with you while you're playing and is in this like dialogue with you. And then like as you're improvising that they're like testifying, they're they're affirming, they're um, basically giving you verbal high fives, you know. And that's the culture, like that is the culture of elder black women and men of Oakland for whom that meant something, you know? And that's who I was playing for. And with, <laughs> I was playing with those people too. So that was revelatory to me in the sense that like, oh, this isn't just something you refine in a practice room somewhere and then play to impress your peers or something like that. It's actually, there's this intergenerational wealth of knowledge that I was just at the beginning of, very, very beginning. I was like a, an infant learning how to crawl, you know. It grew in me over time, this sort of like, through re repeated exposure, this sense of love, like just care and warmth. But you were like encouraged to be yourself, you know, like to find your own way to tell a story or find your own story to tell, or draw from within, you know. 
and that became the pattern that I observed, not just there, but um, in that I continue to um, experience in my collaborative relationships and um, the ones that are, that have mattered and sustained me and and uh, lasted. You know, are the ones that um, are not some kind of uh, competition or a a sense of like you need to be the best in the world or something. It was actually more like, um, we're doing this for others. This is a service that we're doing, you know, we're, we're, um, and so we become vessels for something larger than ourselves. It's funny because the way the music business works, it tends to value the other thing. It tends to value the, um, displays of excellence and perfection and, um, uh, genius and amazingness and, <laughs> um, and that's what you know that it becomes valuable on the scale of you know ticket sales album sales these kinds of things it's like um, people think that's what they're doing that's the people think that's what music is supposed to do it's supposed to like portray us at our best or something like that. But um, I also know that music is a space to be vulnerable and to be among others and to share and build something and do something together that you can't do by yourself. And so it's, you know, it's all of those things. It's not like one needs to exclude the other. And certainly we value the people who had ingenuity and, um, invention, you know, inventiveness and, um, and offered something to the world that didn't exist before. Um, but we also don't need to demand that every second. <laughs> we can um, realize that music is doing something else, that music is, um, is serving as this connective tissue, you know, this kind of... Um, a bond, something that binds us, and that, in fact, seems to be its primary function, is to bind us through feeling more than anything. So it's nice to be reminded of that, you know, it's something like just, in a way, it's just a truth about the human species, that we do this for each other. What finally kind of was the catalyst for me to decide on a life in music or to make it the center of my life was um, this musician who's 15 years older than me named Steve Coleman who um, he's one of the greatest and most influential and important musicians of the last half century and um, that mattered to me because I didn't know if I had anything to offer, but he did. And I knew that he had something to offer <laughs> because I had witnessed it. Um, and so he kind of nurtured me and just invited me in. He invited me along with him. He took me on the road, you know. It was validating. It was a trial by fire in a lot of ways, but it was also like he was very patient and encouraging and gave me gentle, sometimes harsh, but useful critique that like helped me grow. And um, 
I became someone new through all of that. He was one of several elder musicians who did that for me. I think for me, um, that's always been a core, like, motivating force for me is, like, the fact that we make music with and for and among others. And so we build meaning together. If meaning is a thing, maybe meaningfulness is a better word than meaning per se, because I'm not sure I could tell you what any piece of music means. I can say that it matters to me because it's played a role in my life. You know, it's given me joy or it's given me, uh, it's made me feel connected to something outside of myself. And partly because I never took piano lessons. What piano, what piano was for me, especially as a kid, was just this zone of discovery and it was unguided, un, not even goal-driven. It was just sort of like exploratory. And, you know, it was like the fact that I then later got to do it in public was like, wow, this, this is such a bonus. You know, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even know this would happen to me. This wasn't a plan. <laughs> so certainly at the piano in this space that was unguided, ungoverned, unstructured, you know, it has been a space of um, solace, discovery. One thing that I have done a bit over these months is just, it's kind of like the musical equivalent of automatic writing. <laughs> so um, just record myself at the piano with no agenda whatsoever, just like turn on the tap, you know, like whatever it is. And I don't often know what it is. Like something would happen that I'd, couldn't account for i couldn't even pinpoint where in me it was coming from you know i can observe my hands doing it and i can li and i listen to it and then like somehow the choices of what to do next are guided by that process of observation and listening um but something else too so there's something in me that produces <laughs> that i don't know what I can't explain it. Like I, I don't understand. I don't know what it means, and that's okay because it's doing something else that's beyond meaning or before meaning, beneath or after meaning. <laughs> Just something that isn't meaning. It's something else that's like um, mattering, you know. Making Meaning is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. It is produced by me, Zachary Davis, and Jack Pombriand. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. We would love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org.